live from the internet, it's the Narrative After Show, bringing you the entire week in review, with Rachel Finnecoffer, Eric Garland, and here's your host, Zeb Chalet. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Friday Night After Show right here on Narrative TV. It's so good to be with you on a Friday night. We made it to Friday night, everybody. Hi to Rachel Bittercoffer and Eric Garland. How are you, uh, Rachel? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm really good. It's good to be with you tonight. There's lots going on in the news, lots to talk about. Oh. Eric Garland is uh, here as well. How are you doing, Eric? Okay. You're a little buffery, as we say in the business. Oh, and now you've disappeared. <laughs> So, Rachel, uh, last week we saw you finding a BMX track. Did you find anything exciting this week? <laughs> that was glorious. Yeah, it was glorious. <laughs> but nothing, nothing but right new. This week I have, I have not independently. Oh, actually, that's a total lie. Total yeah. lie. I can't believe you actually asked me that because now that I think about it, yesterday I hopped on my bike alone and snuck out of the house because I Ooh. wanted to see what was down the rest of this weird bike track path that's near that the bmx place and my kid can only go so far he kind of gets you know off topic so yeah. i i kept going and i discovered like this bike path it's just like right by my house and it goes for a long time and it goes past this beautiful park with a bunch of ponds like man-made ponds in it so I'm feeling pretty damn good about the house I bought. Isn't isn't biking just the best, especially, you know, when the weather gets nice, you get year-round nice weather, don't you? Close to that. That's right. That's right. That's, right. That's what I moved home for. I mean, oh, really? I needed for 12 years. I'm so heat sensitive. Yeah. Uh, I've always been, even when I was an athlete, it was um, a handicap for me. I would flush and I, you know, I just, humidity is just not my thing. And I'm not a fan out, either. Out east, I couldn't even enjoy, I mean, I couldn't do anything except for if it didn't involve being submerged in water, <laughs> like I couldn't do it. So, yeah. So is it true that you get all year round nice weather in Oregon? So we're temperate rainforest on the I-5 corridor, which runs through the western half of Washington and Oregon and down a little bit into Cali. And so the winter is rainy and you want it to be because that's how we have the nickname, the Emerald Valley, right? right. You have to have wetness. But in the summer, all the way from like June to October is just freaking beautiful. And you'll get some heat waves where it'll get up in the 90s, but it's dry heat. So even then you're doing real good to do outside stuff. And it's just Sounds amazing. Great. I love that. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll become your neighbor one of these days. We got Actually, so much Oregon's terrible. Nobody should ever come here. <laughs> <laughs> no, keep I'm all about the geographic sorting. I, I want more and more liberals to move to Oregon and keep me safe. <laughs> right. That's the way to do it. Um, yeah. We have so much news to talk about today. Most of it is not that pleasing, but we, I got to tell you later on in the show, I've been thinking about those seven and a half hours of where Donald Trump has been on January the 6th and why the phone records have disappeared for those seven and a half hours. I think I have an idea of where he might have been. So everyone should stick around for that because it's going to be really interesting as I unveil my theory, just a theory, but it's a good, well thought out theory about where Donald Trump was during those seven and a half hours. Plus, we'll talk a lot about what's going on in Ukraine and we'll talk a little bit about uh, the crime spree amongst police officers around the country. But we should start off with the really historic stuff, the really really incredible big news of the day. Ketanji 
Brown Jackson, who soon will be a, a justice, not yet a justice, as everyone keeps reminding me, but currently still a judge, but on her way to becoming a justice. After confirmation yesterday, she did that with the words, we've made it today, and on the White House lawn there with uh, Joe Biden and, of course, Kamala Harris uh, there to help her along. Pretty impressive moment for America, don't you think, Rachel? Yeah, sure was. I mean, I think the quote for me from the confirmation celebration today was, you know, within one generation, my family has gone from segregation to the Supreme Court, you know, and it just, it's a testament to the power of those two pieces of federal legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which fundamentally altered the South. It set into motion the Dixiecrat Revolution and, you know, is at the kind of the beginning of the story of how we ended up in such a fucked up spot here in America right now. Well, you know, it's good you mentioned that because we've made a lot of progress in the last 100 years. They really, you know, humanity has moved along very, very quickly. So this current little skirmish with the white man still holding on to his power, it's just a little skirmish. Overall, most people have gotten to live more equal, better compensated lives and better, healthier lives overall. People have progressed to a much better space than they were 100 years ago, I would say. And, you know, yeah, we're having a little skirmish along the way here at the end. Of course, there's some resistance to all of this change. But overall, when you look at these things, you look at the progress women have made in general, uh, Black women have made now the highest part of our uh, judicial system. It's remarkable. It's remarkable that this happened today. And uh, and it's a barrier that's long overdue to have been broken. So it's thrilling that uh, she's the one to do it. And she seems amazing, especially compared to some of the recent justices that have been put up by the GOP, which are like questionable at best. She really does seem like she fits the bill quite well. Yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I think Gorsuch and Amy Coney Barrett, mm. uh, you know, I, I'm pretty good at like taking away the partisan <laughs> blinders, right? Yeah. I mean, they were both totally qualified temperamentally in every way. Obviously, they're ideologues and it's not their fault they can get confirmed. It's the fault of the system that is so sick now that we got rid of the 60 vote threshold in mm. order to confirmed judges to the Supreme Court. And the nice thing about 60 votes is that it forced a more centrist nominee out of both parties for a long time. That has completely, of course, gone out the window since McConnell got rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court after we Democrats were forced to do so to get any of Obama's judges confirmed. They were holding hundreds hostage. We had to get rid of the filibuster for the lower courts. And so they used that as a justification. And, you know, that's that's the price you pay. But in terms of the quality of, I would say, personality, you know, family type things, we can diametrically be opposed to people like Barrett and um and Gorsuch, right? But mm. at the end of the day, they're just, they're very equivalent in terms of qualification and right. temperament. Kavanaugh, not so much. Kavanaugh. No, was. I would not say so. I mean, you know, <laughs> she, they sat there and called her a fucking child predator yeah. coddler. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just so, it, it would be anger. It would make you angry if it was, <laughs> you know, in any case, yes. I, yeah. I think that that is an equivalent charge. And I think that she showed the temperament that you would expect somebody in that situation to be able to hold on to. And we'll never, I'll never forget uh, I'm much more, less of a Kavanaugh extremist than others, as you might guess, just listening to me talk about the court mm. as an academic. But I am certainly, you know, was not, did that was just not a moment for me that that was kind of, for me, worse than the whole other 
part was the, was you know, this tantrum. man can't control his emotions, yeah, yeah. right? Absolutely. A tantrum in the middle of a confirmation hearing, not exactly something you'd want in a, in a Supreme Court justice. We have so much more to talk about tonight, and I'm going to play a little commercial break because I want to be able to have a free-form conversation after we come back from the break, and hopefully we'll find Eric to talk a little bit more about this, but also to talk about what Donald Trump was doing on Jan 6th. We think we figured it out. So stick around. We'll tell you more after this little break. Hey, everybody. It's Zev. It's becoming more and more expensive to buy groceries. And if you, like me, are trying to get all the nutrients and vitamins you need while still balancing a budget, it's nearly impossible to get all the nutrients you need from the food you eat alone. Never mind doing it on a budget. Then it becomes absolutely impossible. That's why I'm currently doing a 30-day self-imposed Athletic Greens Challenge. The plan is simple. Take the AG1 supplement throughout April and track any increase in energy levels, overall well-being, and vitality, all while boosting my immune system. Today is day seven, and the biggest fear people have about these green drinks is the taste. I happen to love the taste of this drink. It doesn't taste bad at all. It tastes a little fresh, a little tropical, but not too much. Certainly doesn't taste like your typical green drink. So it gets lots of points in that, and that's why I've made it to day seven. Hopefully you will try this too. G1 is engineered to provide all the right nutrients at just the right time. Whether you want increased energy or improved muscle recovery, they've got it covered. And because they care about your wallet too, AG1 will only cost you around three bucks a day. That's a pretty good deal. And there are no hidden fees. To make it easier for you and because they love you, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative. That's the way we spell narrative, N-A-R-A-T-I-V. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative to take ownership of your health and pick the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. By the way, it's a very yummy drink. I'm on day seven. I feel fantastic. It gives me all this good energy, which is, uh, I shouldn't be surprised by it, but it really does make me feel pretty damn good. So um, people should try the Athletic Greens challenge and also the Athletic Greens offer we've got on athleticgreens.com forward slash narrative. Do you like the new poster I made us? You like the little... It's beautiful. I was nice? thinking, I was thinking, dang, I need to like get my new headshot and put it in there at some point. <laughs> Oh, this is a great headshot of you. I'm trying to make these like balloons or like um, bubbles is what I was trying to say and make them float around. So hopefully they'll do that in the next iteration of our poster. But people like the new opening and I want to thank our friend Matt Fausa for spending so much energy of recording it and, and making it all look so fantastic. Uh, I should also tell folks that at narrative.org forward slash TV, that's narrative.org forward slash TV is where you can join in the conversation for the last time for free on the interactive player where you can join in and share your thoughts. Hey, Eric, there you are. Hello. We missed you. How was, how was yeah, things? Yeah. Yep. Oh, Everything good. good? Um, yeah, but that's, everything's good. Technically, it's just technology is not, uh, not a green. I, I want to use that as a general description yeah, of my no. of my mood some days. Buffery. <laughs> it's a good term. Um, we had a lot of fun on the chat on the call earlier on today discussing where Donald Trump was for the seven and a half hours. I want to get to talk about that soon. I've got a whole whole idea here, a whole game of clue for everyone to play. But before we do that, we should talk a little bit about the war because it is horrific what's going on in Ukraine. And it seems to me like we're only just beginning to see the next big um, confrontation. We've only seemed to be getting to the very worst part of it now with Russia now amassing new forces along the eastern front of Ukraine. And it looks like they're waiting for a massive assault. And this time it's going to be a very different uh, event because, of course, 
Kiev was a, is an urban fortress. It was well, well, well secured by Ukrainians. It was hard to get to. Now we're talking about a very different territory all along the Black Sea. Very easy for the Russian Black Sea force to get to. Also very easy for them to try to approach on multiple sides. So, Eric, you know, people should be bracing themselves that today's attack where 50 people died at a train station might not be the worst of it. So there could be a lot more of these kind of civilian tragedies um, along the way as we're heading into what could be the very worst part of this war. Well, you have the Russians involved. Mm-hmm. So as long as they're involved and there are civilian populations, then you're going to have that trouble. They are just... just I don't know if they care about their image around the world. Maybe they don't care about it. Maybe this is the image they're trying to project. But the shocking nature of what they're doing is kind of, you know, firstly, never been seen in real time. So I guess that's another factor as we're getting video uh, of these atrocities coming to us first time. But it's, it's ridiculous that they feel like this is a way that they can approach the world. It's just unbelievable that they, their only form of taking over this country successfully is to obliterate the people, is to obliterate the civilian population. That's what they've come to. Um, it's not what they've come to. It's what they've always done. I mean, the, um, if, you know, ask an Estonian, uh, whether you're talking about the early 20th century or, um, just after, um, after the Soviet Union came apart and the hardliners in Moscow wanted to take over again, over from Gorbachev, there was a train car that they discovered near Tallinn, Estonia with 250,000 pairs of handcuffs. Mm. That was in the 1990s. You know, this is a uh, culture that militarily had no problem putting the machine guns behind the soldiers, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of the front line pointing forward, yeah. it was behind the soldiers to prevent their retreat. Now, why would they retreat? Half of them didn't have shoes. Lots of them didn't have ammunition. And they were told to go into the field. This is their own soldiers. Mm. Well, you don't have them in ammunition now, but that guy up there does. And when he gets shot and dies, you can pick his rifle up. Um, there's, there are other, um, you know, we, if you see through kind of uh, post enlightenment Western eyes, uh, the Russian a- actions don't make any sense. Right. If you see them through, you know, and, and this is not stereotype and it is not, uh, Russophobia or anything. These are people that when it comes to war, they are brutal mm-hmm. and proud of it. And they think that that is, uh, uh, what, uh, you know, uh, gets respect and, you know, they're not wrong. People have certainly, countries have certainly, you know, surrendered to their offenses, but uh, they, uh, you know, do not have the same view of war crimes as the rest of the world. So this kind of thing where you intentionally create a, a quote, humanitarian corridor, and then when people try and go through it, uh, you blow it up. That's a psychological warfare technique. And you just... You, but it really uh, does. It's an indication of their the weakness country. on the field. I mean, really, on the at least in the, in the battlefield, they've been horribly unsuccessful. So what they're doing now is this atrocious, you know, almost genocide. I'm, I'm wondering why there is so much resistance to the word genocide because we, in fact, are seeing what looks to me like a genocide. When you look at the destruction of Mariupol, when you look at the the scenes at, at Bucha, the, those places are horrifically seem horrifically targeted just because they were the people on the other side, which is basically. The definition of a genocide. Well, you know, I'm um, surprised that they were not getting yes. into that a little bit further. Well, first of all, a lot of the Western leaders are, and there's constant new meetings in Brussels and, uh, you know, with our, our European counterparts, you know, to discuss these the, the policies about what to do about these guys. You know, the terms war crimes have come out very, very quickly. And that's, you know, we forget, um, or rather, I think it, it slipped under the radar. There's been a lot, there's a lot going on every day. Um, you know, Russia was voted off uh, the UN Security Council 
or the, uh, the human, human rights, rights Council, the yeah. United Nations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, that's I new. Mean, I mean, we've, we've good. allowed them that position. Uh, and now it's like, mm, no, I mean, realistically, Russia and China should never have a seat on the human rights, anything. Neither should the Saudis or the Emiratis. Yeah, it seems you know? to be always the worst. Sometimes we do let them on. Are on there, which is kind of uh, ironic and horrific as well at the same time. But, you know, we're, we're I just, mm-hmm. just to underline what I think we're going to head into. We're heading into a situation where we're going to see the very worst of the war, potentially, the most horrific scenes we've seen up until now, potentially. And, you know, the attitude seems to be even a little bit of fatigue around the war. And also just, well, okay, let's just do this. Let the Ukrainians go ahead and, you know, face slaughter against the Russians. And there seems to be a sort of an overall acceptance that this is just the way it has to be. And I'm wondering if you guys think it is the way it has to be or whether there is, just on humanitarian grounds alone, is there a solution that we're missing here that, you know, don't we as a world, as a society, aren't we sort of forced to at least try and help these poor innocent civilians that are being caught in this, in this horrific genocidal situation? I mean, to be clear, we're not doing nothing. We're doing everything we can do except for engage Russia militarily. Yeah. And, you know, here's the thing, my thought on this, and I have no idea. Like, I'm just pontificating. This is not my area of expertise. But I do think it is important that every time uh, Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, or Joe Biden speaks about this topic, they say like three or four times pointedly, <laughs> we are not sending troops into Ukraine. We're not going to engage Russia militarily. OK, mm. and if you think about that, like there's no benefit politically in terms of just pure politics for them to say that shit. In fact, it's the antithesis of that. Right. Because you can it could leave mm-hmm. you open to attack. And the fact that they keep saying it, the two of them so intentionally multiple times every time they're in front of a press corps, it suggests to me that the generals are really fucking concerned about escalation. And especially as Russia's situation has become so desperate, because keep in mind, they made a couple of strategic blunders coming in, opening up too many fronts, not anticipating the Ukrainian response, and then not understanding that the world was not going to around on these sanctions. I mean, we dropped a nuclear bomb on them. This week, it came out that their economy is going to decrease and it constrict by 15 percent at once. That's huge. It wipes out all of the gains that they've made economically since 2000. And Russia just did not assume that they would not be able to fund their own war effort, right? So, you know, they're running out of money. They're running out of troops. They've lost seven or eight generals, which is an absurd amount. And it's a tipping point where you cannot maintain order well. You know, I just think it's really telling. There must be somebody, and I trust the Joint Chiefs. I trust our security apparatus. I think it's still the best in the world by, oh, by a million miles. Somebody is putting the fear of God both into Blinken and Biden every time they talk to be clear about that. So it, it just, it sucks. It, it's horrible. Sucks. This is I mean, the only thing we can do. That says for the kids or for children in Russian mm. on it, that's the thing that hit the train station. I, I know. I mean, I, you know, at night I, I think about picking up my own, you know, just picking my own self up and going and fighting Russians. You know, I want, I want to help them so desperately, but I like these policymakers and I sure as shit don't envy them. I always thinking about intervention in the terms of it is a gamble of six billion live. It's nothing we can rush into. Yeah, absolutely. This is that uh, missile that was labeled, I guess, in Russian for the kids, which is just for the children. 
which hit the train station today, and 50 people believed dead, but many hundreds may be injured. And these people were civilians <clears throat> trying to escape, trying to get out of, out of Don, um, Donetsk. Donetsk region, sorry, um, and trying to escape for some sort of um, safety because they have this war that's approaching to them that's going to be so much worse than the war they've already experienced for eight years. And then they have to be confronted by a deliberate, and regardless of what the Russians say, deliberate uh, attack on the train station. Obviously a very, a very important artery. Yeah, because it's a civilian train station. It's not a military target. It's a clear war crime. And I think while it's frustrating maybe to hear you know, Joe Biden and Antony Blinken, not do the old Ronald Reagan, you know, faux gaffe of the early 80s. Do you guys remember all the way back when there was hot mics uh, on a press conference and Ronald oh. Reagan said, we've just passed new legislation outlawing the Russians. The bombing begins in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know in political lore if, if that was known to be an intentional mistake or if it was just, you know, uh, something that got caught hot. But, you know, on our side, that was kind of like, because, <laughs> you know, yeah. politically, he's coming off of Carter and, you know, the Iranians capturing hostages and, you know, that feeling of impotence and weakness. And Reagan comes in and he's an actor and he's doing the bravado thing. And so that kind of works. And, you know, it's frustrating to do the right thing when it's not as aggressive as you'd like it to be. However, I think Joe does it when, pardon me, President Biden does it when he, you know, somebody says, what about if Vladimir Putin is, I don't care what that guy thinks. I mean, that's Delaware, you know, for that guy, you know, it's it's pretty, you know, it's pretty strong stuff. Uh, He would just say, that guy, right, Eric? (laughs) He's censoring himself. (laughs) I mean, he's got it. He's still an Irish dude from Scranton. That's what he's thinking. He's like, that guy. Um, But but he's like, I don't care. I don't care what he thinks because, you know, he's now president. But it's a stronger position to let them, the second we enter that officially and we become a belligerent in that, then we lose something major, which is um, the fact is Russia is failing uh, to achieve a really minor basic military objective as a major world power. They can't even win in a much weaker state where they own a whole ton of the rich people and have, you know, tunnels into their telecommunications networks and have working knowledge of their whole military and everything with all these moles all over the place. And it's right next door and they can't even do that. And again, you got to think like a a Russian here, the way they keep power, especially when you have a really brutal dictator, like, uh, like Putin's regime, they have to show this very macho, super strongly. That's why the dudes, I mean, it just looks ridiculous to us, but it works better on their people where he's on horseback and he's, Mm. you know, naked from the waist up. I mean, that's like the Dukakis (laughs) tank moment, a bit like what, but over there and, you know, being super aggressive plays to the Russian people. But if you think they're about how their food prices are about to go up and how all their um, the, all the all the yachts of their rich guys, yeah. those are ours. And where the well, it's Friday. It's the after show. Where the fuck are they going to sail them out of <laughs> Arkhangelsk? Not as fun as Monaco, is it, asshole? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. Co- they- Azul, everyone, Isle of Capri, way, <laughs> you know, Crete, Santorini, Greece. And nicer, right, guys? Not this winter, not this spring. You guys get Murmansk. And you, yeah. your and you yeah, never get to travel internationally again. <laughs> you know, there's two things that come yeah, out of this. I, I think- and they, yeah, and you don't get to travel. They just indicted uh, Konstantin Malofiev, not just sanction him. Now they've indicted him. So Interpol Red Notice goes out. 
he goes to any civilized country where they all kept all their money, then mm. he gets arrested and extradited. You know, uh, in the same, put him on the same plane with Dimitri Furtash. Send them all yeah. over, as far as I'm can, concerned. Can we just underline but before that, we leave him off way over there? I just think it's remarkable that Jack Hannock is Sean, Hannett's, Sean Hannity's producer. The guy yes. he's indicted, he's co or whatever the expression would be, is actually Sean Hannity's ex producer. Like, no one seems to be Get freaking out. out about I did this, not know but, this. But, yeah, really? so he hired oh, yeah. Sean Hannity's ex producer named Jack Hannock to go and start oh. his extreme right wing Orthodox TV network in Russia. And that's who he hires, is Sean Hannity's guy from the United States. And then he goes ahead oh, and does this. Than he builds, builds this TV station. And then on top of that, they conspire to do all the Ukrainian propaganda to weaken Ukraine and divide Ukraine. And then on top of that, they're busy buying TV networks in Greece and Bulgaria because, you know, that's where the intentions are. The empire wants to grow. And so it's Jack Hannock's producer that's doing this. I mean, to me, it's just like, how can people not see this as being a sensationally big news? The guy who's reading the news at eight o'clock or nine o'clock, whenever Sean Hannity's on TV, his producer is running the entire campaign for the oligarch in charge of this. It's, it blows my mind away. Wait, it's, it's his the, current producer? No, his ex-producer, but still. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, come on. It's his ex-producer. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at this point, dude. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't either. I'm sure they still talk to each other. I'm sure that, uh, oh, you know, Jack sure. calls Sean every once in a while and says, by the way, isn't this an interesting, uh, you know, point of view or the propaganda lead you might want to follow on your show tonight? It seems insane that this is that Fox News still continues to be on the air. It just it boggles my mind. That well, especially when you consider then that at the time period that probably they were together was when Sean Hannity was talking to Trump on unsecured phones, yeah, basically fucking nightly, right? So yeah, yeah I mean, well, it was there actually it's before. Kind of a problem. It, it predates the Trump era, but oh. I'm sure they spoke because they often are the same propaganda. Yeah. Now, now he's Hannock was more um, central to Fox News than that. He helped establish the network from a high level starting in 1996, and he left in mm. in 2013. And right in time began for the his new career. Yes, uh, right in time to defy the Emergency Economic Powers Act and uh, start, <laughs> you know, being a real bad boy. Yeah, and then you know attacking so. Crimea while while they're there. I mean, it seems it seems yep. remarkable. It seems remarkable that this is allowed to go, and we have to really f- confront this evil of Fox News and their the Russian propaganda that's being foisted upon us. We shall do that on another day. But any thoughts on the um, anything else you want to say about the war before we leave the war? Because I want to get to Jan six. Anything else from either? It's supposed of to be happy hours. So I know. Let's I know. I want to play Clue with you guys. You ready for Clue? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> would you like? Would you like? War or coup d'etat? That's Friday. Happy Friday. <laughs> it no, was Colonel got... Mustard in the library with Eric Shue. There you go. That's the game I want to play tonight. That's exactly right. So we have been trying to figure out, well, I've been trying to figure out because I have lots of time on my hands and this is a weird looking poster, but you can see what, I, what it says. What happened to those Trump missing seven and a half hours? Indeed, what happened to those missing seven and a half hours? You know, Trump is reputedly... Not in the, well, well, let me back up here a little bit and change these slides and explain to you what is going on. So we know that Donald Trump was missing for seven and a half hours, at least according to the records given to the January 6th committee that's investigating the events of January the 6th. There's a missing seven and a half hours of telephone records that they should have had. They just don't have them. And yesterday, Donald Trump, maybe it was in the 6th, told this to the Washington Post. He said, 
that, you know, the 45th president has repeatedly deflected blame for stoking the attacks with false claims that the 2020 election was stolen. And in the interview, he struck a defiant posture, refusing to say whether he would testify before congressional committee investigating the Jan 6 assault. Trump also said, and this is the important stuff, that he didn't remember getting very many phone calls that day, and he denied removing call logs or using burner phones. So we know that's kind of not true, right? We know that on that day, this is a great thing. These guys put together this chart showing exactly when Trump was taking calls that were logged and then when he wasn't. And this whole like gray bar section in the middle is when he was supposedly, there's no records of him making any telephone calls, but we know that he did make telephone calls, but not obviously from this main number that tracks what the president was calling, which is exactly what the committee asked for. And that leads you to the question of how did Mike Pence, Senator Tommy Tuberville, and House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, plus another person, how did they manage to get hold of him? If they knew they got on the phone with him during those seven and a half hours, where was he? Now, the obvious questions you would have, or the obvious reasons that people have come up with so far are that he, that he had a burner phone, which most people dispute because really, can you imagine Trump going to this corner store and getting a burner phone? I don't think so. The second a possibility here. Other people's phones. It was using other people's phones. It's quite possible he was using other people's phones. But, you know, for seven and a half hours, like loaning a phone when you could just have your own phone seems unlikely. Maybe he wasn't even there is the other possibility. Maybe he was just out. Also not really very likely. He didn't call anyone at all. Also not likely because we know that he did call people or they weren't logged. The <laughs> calls weren't logged at all. But that's strange because they were logged just before and just after. Or maybe there's a cover-up. Maybe there's a, just a giant cover-up that's taking place and those seven and a half hours are removed. But that's weird. How did they get to that? There's no evidence to suggest that anything was taken out of the logs. So the logical conclusion for me is that he was just in a different phone. He was just somewhere else and not using that particular presidential phone line. So we know that he might have been somewhere else in the White House because according to Senator Lee, he told Brian Schott, he's a reporter of the Salt Lake Tribune, Senator, remember those Trump calls and Giuliani, by the way, call Senator Lee, and it's not Senator Lee they want to talk to. They actually want to talk to Tommy Tuberville, who they're trying to convince to help them with their scheme to defraud the American population of their rights to vote. So this is according to Senator Lee and reported by Brian Schott. I went and found Senator Tuberville, handed him the phone and explained that the president would like to speak to him. Lee texted to the reporter and then he said, I stood nearby for the next five or 10 minutes as they spoke, not wanting to lose my phone in the middle of a crisis. Then the Capitol Police became very nervous and ordered us to evacuate the chamber immediately as they were forcing everyone out of the chamber. I awkwardly found myself interrupting the same telephone conversation I had just facilitated. Excuse me, Tommy, we have to evacuate. Can I have my phone? Senator Tuberville promptly ended the call and returned my phone to its rightful owner. Now, interestingly enough, we know where that phone call came from. That phone call came from a number from within the White House, where it says here that the former president called the phone of Republican Senator Mike Lee with a number recorded as 202-395-0000, a placeholder number that shows up when a call is incoming from a number of White House department phones, the sources said. So I think that tells us that he was in the White House, but maybe not in his office. I mean, that's me. I mean, am I right? Does that make sense? 
Yes, from what we understand, I mean, wasn't he in the residence all day, glued to the television, fast forward and going back and be like rooting them on and telling everybody how great it was and then finding out that other people were like, I feel like we're going to go to jail, you know? I think they don't, we don't know where he was. We think he was watching TV, that much we've been told, but I don't know if we know whether it was in the residence or the White House or the Oval Office, we don't know. He could have been in both places, as it turns out, because, and this is where it gets into the theory I'm really, this is very much a theoretical conversation from here onwards. You know, there are ways to get from the White House Oval Office to the residence without anyone being tracked. You know this? Either of you know this? Yes? Because no? I have no life and I spend too much time learning about this stupid shit. I have no <laughs> life and I do this for you so you can find out that there is actually a secret tunnel beneath the White House. It's a 50-year passageway that will get you from the Oval Office to the family residence on the East Wing of the White House. And that's a, this was all discovered by U.S. News and World Report when they excerpted an FBI agent, in, who former retired FBI agent, Gary Aldrich, when he wrote a book about Bill Clinton. In it, he discovered that the clandestine passage built during Ronald Reagan's presidency as a way to guard the president in a terrorist attack is certainly handy. Passing a panel on a wall adjacent to the president's restroom next to the Oval Office causes a secret door to slide open, leading it to a staircase down the well-lighted passageway. The tunnel comes out in a storage closet from the president's private elevator in the basement of the residence. There is a second exit near the office that was once the White House barbershop in the West Wing basement. The tunnel dug in 1987 while Reagan was at Camp David or vacationing in California was called Project ZP. Removal of the earth and concrete caused a large depression south of the Rose Garden, but reporters and staffers thought it was just a natural sinkhole. Reagan once used the tunnel to sneak Richard Nixon into a private meeting on foreign policy. So that's interesting. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that. Did you know huh. that? So they have a, a secret passage. So if you want to sneak out, if you're the president, you just press the button on the wall, and I guess it opens up, and then you go downstairs into the basement. A few steps away, you're in the residence. You can do whatever you want to when you're in the residence. So that's kind of, so you could have been either in the residence or you could have been in the Oval Office. It sounds a little undramatic though for where he might be that day. It's probably a bigger possibility, I think. Dum, 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 dum. <laughs> so the next yeah, thing that comes to I mean, mind, where, let's see, now that you mention it, there was, uh, remember like two weeks in 2017 when they like closed the White House to like totally change out the heating ventilation and air conditioning the hvac system i want to make sure i'm not misremembering do you guys ever remember the white house like closing off for like two solid weeks no no it's very rare time since you were a kiddo no never yeah no i wonder if you know if there were any additional infrastructure projects that went on during that you know there was a rose garden that was rebuilt for by the former first lady that was redone in order to have their, their little party, their little election yeah. party in the White House. We don't uh, call that a uh, redo. We call that a, uh, <laughs> you know, a murder. A murder life, of, the, right? of the beautiful garden that was there. So it wasn't that construction. <laughs> travesty. That's what we call it, Zim. They, travesty. They, they took out the roses and put in Israeli signals intelligence devices. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, imagine, did I say that out loud? Imagine <laughs> this, guys. The family that shits in gold toilets, you know, has terrible taste. Shocker. Shocker. You know, there's also, <laughs> there was a theory as well that it was Mark Burnett who was putting out the, uh, who's getting ready for that shot, wanted a dolly shot of the, uh, which is moving tracking shot of the first lady, which they landed up including in the big special mm. that they did. And that might've been a reason that they decided to reconstruct the Rose Garden. It's quite possible that that was the reason too. But who knows? Who knows? We don't Remember know Remember sure. when that dumb shit 
fucking did the whole thing where he flew home from Walter Reed Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and then ran up the stairs and coughed at everybody i can't believe he lived Sometimes. through that shit like it's just like you know like that it's happened a that's a period. thing that happened remember that when he left the hospital with covid yeah. and forced the secret service to sit in the limousine so he could that's wave <laughs> at the crowd we were a like, bunch of proud boys that were out there that was who came to see him oh, we can't we are sick people man yeah. we need help but there's, been, there's been another bit of construction going on in the White House in recent past. This happened during the Obama era. So there is an underground bunker tunnel facility, I guess you should call it. It's always been there. It's been there for a long time. That connects the east uh, wing of the White House to the Treasury offices across the street. And it's been a bit, a bit of disrepair over the years. So during the Obama presidency, they did this giant dig. They didn't really tell people what it was about. But clearly, you know, after the fact, it became pretty obvious that this was a rebuild of their very tunnel or bunker that existed between the two places. So it looks like a pretty big dig. It looks like a pretty serious high-end sort of top security kind of dig. This is White House photos. I'm not revealing anything here that, that I'm not supposed to. Okay. So everyone knows this information. It's pretty public that it's out there. <laughs> this is from their, from their very nice whitehouse.gov site if people want to go check out what the build was all about. Now, to position everybody and to get a sense of where this tunnel really is, we're going to pull up the map. Here's the map. So let's spot the White House here. Help me here. There's the White House. Okay. So there's the East Wing. This is the residence of the White House. And there's the Rose Garden, by the way. I think that's where it is. Here's the Treasury Department on the other. Oh, let me pull this over a little bit so you can see. There's the Treasury Department. And I guess the thinking around this tunnel all along was that if there's some sort of crisis, the president could leave the White House East Wing, go into these tunnels, and there'd be these secure vaults in the basement of the Treasury Department where they could hide out in a crisis that would be kind of high end. This has been goes back like, you know, ages ago. And so this is, that was the part of the plan is just to get a tunnel out to, to the Treasury Department. So it's quite possible still that that's, it's not quite possible. It likely is what it is still under there. But they also have secure comms and other facilities underneath there in case there's some sort of crisis. And I, you sent me a picture today of a, Erica, maybe you can help me describe people what this picture is. It's of the comms room from a different crisis. Yeah, that's the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, I believe, on September 11th. I'm, right. I'm pretty sure. Which is located. So if you take, you take like the regular old, you know, the White House and like the Willard Hotel on the other side, and then in between you have uh, the Treasury, like kind of. Uh, just a little bit west of the Treasury. That's where the Presidential Emergency Operations Center is. And it would have... So in here, completely is secure. Somewhere in uh, there. Yeah, somewhere a little down there. But yeah. we're looking at about, you know, not quite a 80 yards, mm -hmm. you know, from the East Wing of the White House to the Willard Hotel. You know where Rudy Giuliani and all nice. them other rat bastards were that day? Well, and you know what would be interesting about, you know, the emergency briefing room there, the EBR, the um, PEOC, as it would be marked on the logbooks. But of course, Trump, I believe, didn't log any of that stuff. Like the visitor logbooks would say what uh, meeting, where a meeting was held. And there are entries in the annals of when, uh, you know, briefings like there's briefings that are done in the situation room. I just reviewed Biden's back on doing these things. And for example, I saw an individual whose name I recognized and I was like, oh, that guy's an interpreter. 
oh, he's a Japanese interpreter. That's right. Oh, and they were at the Situation Room. It was all marked and turned out there was a call between the Japanese prime minister and President Biden. And that's why this visitor to the White House came and was escorted to the Situation Room, which is yeah. super, you know, which is secret stuff happens in there. Yeah. But it's still marked that you went there. Anyhow, the Situation Room's upstairs, though, um, right? There's it's also it's the, in the, uh, it's in the West yeah, Wing. Now that think, is, yeah. The sit room's upstairs. Yeah. Yeah. But this, this is downstairs. This is another... This is underground. This is the yeah. Presidential Emergency Operations Center, mm. which would be very interesting because it would have secure communications to uh, the Pentagon mm -hmm. right. and maybe like the Senate mm -hmm. or, you know, or everywhere Hill really. or or well, or just to certain places. And, you know, you might have TVs that you could watch, but that would be only kind of one way. You might have phones that only went to certain places, but it would be completely uh, secure from any you know passersby or some any staff who might be in the White House that you think might be an informant. Uh, you could kind of winnow down the number of people there and be monitoring what was happening on television that day. Mm. And let's say you um, had some reason to be in contact with the Pentagon to make sure they didn't launch a quick reaction force out of uh, that building or anything. Yeah, that's a place you could anything. do that from. Yeah, you could control anything, presumably, from there. So, and we're basically saying here that there is a theory. It's just, this is just a theory, but it is possible for theory. Trump to get out of his Oval Office secretly, get down to the residence through that secret passage, and then find his way to this this other tunnel. Where, sorry, we're boring you. Um, <laughs> <but> <laughs> you won't be bored long. <laughs> We're almost yeah, there. We almost Lord, made it to the show. Boys, yeah, sorry, God, we did lots of boy talk here. Uh, <laughs> all right, I'll keep it. I'll keep it short. I'll do one more last. No, thing here's the thing, Zab. Like what I want to ask you, you yeah. and Eric, though, right? Yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. It's like we know he got these seven hours of call time missing. We know mm -hmm. calls were made mm -hmm. to individuals, right? Mm -hmm. But they also have testimony, even from Jared Kushner now, as to where he was all day. So I'm sure that they know. I mean, I think the mystery oh. is less physically where he was and more why all his phone activity. How could his phone activity not reflect somewhere? Forgive me for asking because I don't know this answer. I was under the impression that if he made a phone for call from either his presidential cell mm. or cells or any phone in the White House, that would be in the log, right? I mean, so it has to be some phone that's not bird in that system. So I don't understand like how this, I had never seen the stuff that you showed Zev about mm. the phone number that showed up yeah. coming back to the white house. So, you know, Eric, do you have a note? Is there some way you can use a phone from some other, you know, office and not have it be in the logs? Do you use someone else's? I mean, I think the, I, I mean, a way you might do it, you know, the interesting part geographically here is again, you're, you know, think of, you know, 80 yards, that's, you know, you could, if you think of somebody running quite fast, you know, how long you'd take to get to a touchdown or whatnot. We're not talking about a long period of time to get from there to like uh, the Willard. Yeah. Um, where you could maybe use somebody's phone and go, let's say you were going to have stuff to talk about back and forth and, you know, you didn't want it on the books at the White House. You might get some really sensitive communications done out of that PEOC, hypothetically. Yeah. And then you could do the, you know, some other stuff uh, by running it over to the rat bastards like uh, Bernie Carrick and uh, Rudy Giuliani and the other trees and weasels. Oh, by the way, since we started the show, uh, the New York Times reported that Ali Alexander has flipped for the government. So oh. we may be getting the answers to some of these questions. 
Yeah, well, that's a I surprise. hope so, because I'm, I'm fascinated by this idea. <laughs> I mean, the president, if he wants to, he can issue an order. So he could have had that tunnel going. He could have been bringing people in through the tunnel for all we yeah. know. He can do whatever the hell he wants. I mean, this is a man that forced the Secret Service into a potential death trap and to parade around, <laughs> you know, and they can't like, I mean, the Secret Service can't tell us. They're not like, it's not like that in that role you can tell us, right? I mean, they might. They're stealthy. Fascinating. Somebody, you know? It's in their name. It's the secret part. It's on the business card. All these people went into the Willard hotel you know giuliani was there he had his little war room uh drew right. stone was in there there was 50 other people according to witnesses high level people who were in the willard hotel who never came out during the entire event they didn't you know there's this giant historic event happening on their doorstep that they came to see but they don't actually go out to see it they just go into the willard hotel and never emerge so Either they're just, you know, hanging out hotel rooms as they like to tell us to believe, or they were having their secret war room conversations as Giuliani and uh, Eastman were having. Or maybe it's possible that they could have gone in and out through this tunnel and through the Treasury Department and got into the White House secret tunnel operations room and had all sorts of conversations going back and forth. I mean, it's not inconceivable. There is literally, I mean, look how close. This is the Willard here. (laughs) It's right here. This is the entrance to the Treasury Department. And then this is the tunnel that goes into the East Room. So once you're in here, no one would know the difference. You'd be underground into into the White House complex pretty quickly. I'm not saying that's and happened. You said, Zev, you said something I think is really interesting too. It's like they came for this event. Okay. Yeah. So like either they're special guest of the white house and the president, and you would think that they'd want to be at the event if they came right. for this event, yeah. you know, and the fact that they never leave the room, never attend the event suggests that they knew they needed to be in a staging situation, right? Mm. Like they needed a war room. Yeah. You know, why else would they be there? And it is kind of odd that they never left the room. It's like they yeah. never intended to go to the event. And it, so. if they really truly expected it to just be a speech and a rally, why would they come and right. then not go to the White House? Right. It's pretty strange. So, you know, weird. if you had an operations room running all this downstairs under the White House East Wing, well, that would be interesting because then it would be more easy to understand why all the events happened the way they did that day and why there was so much reluctance for him to come out. And, you know, where, did they have visibility inside the events that were going on on the Capitol that we weren't aware of? That's also a possibility. It's, you know, none of this is, this is a lot of conjecture and I'm going to just keep repeating this to people <laughs> yeah. because I don't want to say that I'm just being a conspiracy theorist, but it is interesting that you got. Yeah. Well, if you're these, the president of the United yeah. States and you don't want people to sit around and conjecture about your missing seven and a half hours, then yeah. don't go off the grid. <laughs> don't go off the grid. Use the same phone. Right? On the day where you're suspected of hosting a coup that, uh, you know, capstoned into an insurrection on the Capitol. Right? And it would really, That's probably... It would, <laughs> yeah, it would really explain, Eric, to your point why the maybe the Pentagon, you know, didn't do anything that day and why they were so reluctant to move in and why there was all this, you know, guidance towards the National Guard to stand down and why the Secret Service seemed to be aware. There seemed to be a lot of knowledge by a lot of people not to do anything that day. And how would that have happened if we weren't communicated to them from the president? It just seems like that's where the order would have come from. Yeah, because, um, you know, they're known as uh, that's I think the, the slang for it is O plan, uh, you know, operational plans. If this happens, then this gets deployed and this goes yeah. back and forth. I mean, yeah, and a lot of that stuff works, whether or not, uh, you know, sort of automatically they may need to get, uh, you know, authority from the president to do it. But they may also have plans to do something, you know, 
uh, automatically unless there's some reason not to do it. It would depend on the operational plan that's going to be classified, right? But here's something that gets me. Didn't they call the thing, it's like the Willard War Room? But you know what? what's interesting about the Presidential Emergency Operations Center mm. is it's actually built as a war room. Yes, this is the actual war room. In here is the actual the war actual room. actual war room. Yeah. You know. So why would you call that the war room versus the well, well, hotel war room, which is just a meeting room? You know, uh, because Rudy was, you know, he's a, a clownish mm. figure, right? And so is Bannon. You know, there's yeah. 18 shirts and, you know, uh, smelling of nine-year-old gin and whatnot. <laughs> it's all, you know, big joke, right? But they made the National Guard stand down and allow our... Or democracy be right. subject to attempted murder, right. much less clownish. So it's like, oh, they're at the Willard and it's, you know, these people that you've seen on television and their shitty podcasts. And, you know, like why else is Steve Bannon out there doing this podcast? He's this, I mean, he's not a dumb man at all, but he has this shtick going, right? And these guys are this close, but the, the real action here is not, you know, Roger Stone ginning up his buddies from the the oath keepers though they were critical that day but the real action is the fact that the department of defense under trump appears to have engaged in a a conspiracy to allow possibly the murder of elected officials mm -hmm. yeah. and you know um this was obviously a coordinated operation right mm -hmm. but in order to prove that in court let's say a court martial for any of the people in DOD who held a rank that day and had a responsibility or, you know, capital crimes, you know, let's get it out there. Treason and seditious mm. conspiracy. You have to have a state of mind, but you have to prove conspiracy. Now, we've gotten as far with the um, I forget if it's the proud, uh, the proud boys or the Oath Keepers, you know, the auxiliary uh, treason association, whatever you want to mm. call the guys in the golf carts and with their stupid polo shirts. But the, you know, the real conspiracy there, I mean, you know, they're fun to look at and they're, you know, these guys running around in paintball gear. But the real problem was that we had, a, we, you know, the Department of Defense stood down our nation's actual mm -hmm. strongest in the world defense. That's the real stood it down yeah. on purpose mm -hmm. so that possibly these guys could have murdered Nancy Pelosi, dragged Pence off and then justified yep. In insurrection, and we have enough people testifying about that. But this is an important detail because it's now coming down to wait a minute, did these guys work together? And I think mm -hmm. the proximity issue and the communications issue is very important. And that seven hour window is important mm -hmm. because, like, wait a minute, you're off the grid for seven hours and you're within walking distance of these guys. Right. If you coordinated this shit straight out of the White House, you all need to be executed in public. It would be pretty uh, horrific if that's the case. I mean, it's the implications here. If, if this were true, it's just really horrific because you're talking about but a. Boys, uh, I mean, why uh, set the war room up in the Willard, right, where they don't downstairs. control it when they could have done the Trump Hotel, right? Well, the, you can walk, theoretically, mm. you can walk to the Willard secretly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you cannot do that from the Trump Hotel. And they did everything else through the Trump Hotel. Willard right, is a very unusual location, right. but it's the only one right. that has, seems to have this kind of access. It just seems weird to me. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. Well, I, it didn't connect in this way or anything. I just remember when I first read about the war room where, mm. where these guys were, where Giuliani was at. I remember thinking the Willard, that's weird. Why not Trump Hotel? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, it really is weird that they were, they chose the Willard. And there's the Mayflower. There's lots of places to stay. This is uh, exactly the one place you would stay if you needed to get access to the White House really, really quickly. And secretly, you would do that through the Treasury Department. You'd go unnoticed. I mean, really, who's checking the entrance of the Treasury Department? If there isn't some sort of underground entrance between the two things as well. I mean, who knows if the Willard is interconnected to the Treasury Department somehow. It's not inconceivable that that also is a possibility. But certainly there's a tunnel between the, the Treasury Department and the White House East Wing. And certainly with, those men could be moving back and forth much yeah, easier than yeah, Donald Trump could. Yeah, exactly. So, so lots of questions worth pondering, <laughs> worth pondering. I mean, I, I wouldn't normally raise it unless I thought that there were just so many circumstantial questions that you have to ask. Um, you know, I, I got to play this because it's kind of funny. It is Friday. This is um, where Roger Stone wants us to believe he was all day. This is shot inside the Willard by... Uh, the person you're about to see, she's his companion for the day. Here we are in Roger Stone's suite watching the situation on the Capitol unfold. We are safe and sound. That's your opinion? That's the Manhattan uh, madam, I think, who's her name. Maybe she's the Hollywood madam. That was his. Uh, it's almost like she's trying to make sure he's got a fucking uh, alibi. alibi. Dude. Exactly. I mean, that's Which put that so on Instagram. To me, dude. I don't yeah. know. It does. It looks, it looks weird. It looks weird. The whole thing looks weird. Um, <laughs> I mean, if I was trying to prove I wasn't involved in the insurrection physically, like that's how I would do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. You would you'd have the Hollywood <laughs> madam there with you. <laughs> Well, I'm pretty sure I, mean, I would do it nicer than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm laughing because it's a bit funny, but um, but it's also pretty serious, obviously. Hey, that's the end of the hour. Boy, that was a fun, fast hour. Y'all don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> um, do you have plans for the rest of the weekend? Uh, Eric, anything fun and interesting and exciting happening in your part of the world? We never got your story, by the way. We'll have to get no. to it next time. No? Nothing. No. Um, intense research. Because, uh, look, we're um, actually I'm not entirely joking about that. We're really getting down to the story here. This is a mm -hmm. big deal. I think it is a big deal. It's um, on the after show and we're sort of having fun with it because it's the after show. But it's actually a really surreal, interesting story. And I think we'll get to dig into it a little bit more next week because there's other aspects of it that really require some real, real digging into. And hopefully uh, our viewers who are brilliant of this can also do that. Uh, Eric Garland is at Eric Garland. It can also be found at Game Theory Today uh, is what his podcast is called. <laughs> Hamilton is back in town. Hey, Hammy. Oh, hi, Hammy. <laughs> Rachel Bittercoffer. This, 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 this is like literally he does this every day. <laughs> he just knows. Like, All right. Like, that, was a good, that was a good tension. That's a good Friday night tension breaker. That's a good yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, so it's like, I don't think people believe me when I tell them, look, my dog gives me a five o'clock hug every day and tells oh, me it's, it's time to get off the phone. Really? It is time. <laughs> Hamilton needs his own awesome. uh, Twitter account, but they can, you can find Rachel Bittercoffer at Rachel Bittercoffer, if I'm not mistaken. And, and that's me. I'm at Seth Shalevin. That's the end of the show this week. We'll be back on Tuesday. There's so many interesting shows coming up. You, you just have to stick around and watch them because they are huge next week. So um, I hope you'll be back for that. In the meantime, I wish you all a very good night. If, if you're wanting to support us, you can always go to patreon.com forward slash narrative and become a patron of narrative. We really rely on your donations and support to make it all work, um, which hopefully I'm going to be able to do when I press this button, even though it's not showing me the right screen. Good night, guys. All Have a great weekend. donations come directly to me, though, right, Zeb? Yeah, you could. Of course. <laughs> That's the deal, but we don't need to talk about it, right? <laughs> all right. Good night, everyone.
narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.